I think I'll not read the uh, 12th chapter right now, but let you have it there on your um, lap and refer to it. Do you know anybody who is over 80? A guy came up to me this morning and said, my birthday is next week, I'll be 82. To some of us, to the SIGs over here, 80 probably seems really ancient. I can remember when 40 was ancient. You know, there are four stages of life, infancy, childhood, adulthood, and gee, you're looking great. And I have, I've reached that gee, you're looking great time. Frank Laubach uh, says that life begins at 80. He writes a little column that says this, listen to it. I've got good news for you. The first 80 years are the hardest. The second 80, as far as my experience goes, is a succession of birthday parties and good times. When you're 80, everybody wants to help you upstairs, carry your baggage. If you forget a name or fail to meet an appointment or do not address an envelope, you can explain that you're you're 80. If you spill your soup on your shirt, shave on only one side of your face, have on shoes that do not match, or take another man's hat, or carry a letter around for a week without reading it, you're 80. So you can relax without any misgivings, for you have a perfect alibi for everything. I guess getting to be 80 is not that bad, considering alternative. Um, As a matter of fact, we're all getting older. There is this um, growing uh, population of older folks. I heard a remarkable thing this week that 5% of the people in the world alive now, uh, wait a minute, let me put that another way. Of all the people that were born in the history of man, 5% of them are still alive. They're pretty old, but no, because there is this proliferation of the masses, of the, of the races, of people, and everybody's living longer. 5% of the people born since the beginning of time are alive at the moment I'm talking. Amazing statistic. If your granddad was born at the turn of this century, he could expect to live until he was 43. If your dad was born in, in, in 1940, he could expect to live until he was 63. If your child was born in 1980, he could expect to live till he was 73. In 1900, only 4% of the population of this country, the world, could reach the age of 65. Now it's like a little over 11%, and by the year 2000, it will be 12%, a jump of 300%. I mean, we are what the sociologists call experiencing the graying of America. But I didn't come this morning, and you didn't come to hear about it, and I didn't come to talk about the graying of America. I came to talk about the graying of Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. For five weeks we follow this man as he's made his journey through life. And he writes the memoirs of a man in search of what life is about, of life's meaning, of life's fulfillment. He's a man in search of some kind of meaning for life. And now he's getting old. 
And he raises the curtain, the, the shades on the window of his life and allows us to peer in for a moment to discover what it's like when you get old. Actually, somebody was accusing me in Sunday school this morning of picking on old folks. Actually, this sermon is a sermon to young people. What happens when you get old? Well, you confront the things that you no longer can do. And sometimes we, we confront the fact that there's so much that we meant to do we haven't done. And there are so many plans that we planned and so many dreams that we dream we have not been able to fulfill and now we're not physically able to do it. We have reached a time when it's too late. And he describes in a litany of things that happen when you get old, beginning in verse 2. And he talks about these days when the clouds come back after the rain. Now you would expect that he would say that the sunshine comes back after the rain, but he's talking about depression and loneliness and despair. And he says when you get old, there comes those days of darkness, despair, symbols of loneliness and depression and heartache. And the hands, he says, that the watchmen of the house tremble. He's talking about the hands. And the mighty men stoop, that's the shoulders. And the grinding ones stand idle because they're few, that's the teeth. And those who look through windows grow dim, that's eyesight. And the doors of the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. That's, you get hard of hearing, you, your hearing diminishes. And you arise at the sound of a bird. You can't sleep well at night and you get up early. Furthermore, men are afraid of high place and terrors on the road. When we get old, we become paranoid and insecure. And we become obsessed and focused on warnings. And the almond tree blossoms. That's the turning of the hair gray. When the almond tree blossomed, it got snowy white. And the caperberry is ineffective, a symbol of the reproductive organ. You, your ability to reproduce diminishes. You can't have children. And the grasshopper drags himself along. And it means that you, you don't get around as quickly as you used to. And everyone goes to his eternal home while mourners go about the street. Remember him, he says, before the silver cord is broken. That's the spinal column. And the golden bowl is crushed. That refers to a stroke. And the pitcher by the wheel is shadowed. And that's a reference to heart attacks. What a description. What it's like to get old. Encouraging. It's something to look forward to. Well, what is the bottom line of this anyway? Well, the bottom line is in the words he uses in verses 1 and verse 6. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth. What he's saying is, while you're young and you have ability and energy, put God in the center of your life. For no life can find fulfillment and happiness where God is not the reference point. That's what he's saying. And the choice is to leave, to disregard God from your life always comes to one conclusion. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And while you're young and you have the energy and the interest, 
Put God as the reference point from which every decision is made and every action springs. A few years ago, I was asked to go over to uh, Zig Ziglar's place to bring a devotional to his crew every Wednesday at, at, um, in Carrollton, Texas, in Zig Ziglar's uh, facility. This guy, you know, the CU at the top guy, this motivational speaker. Gets about $10,000 for every speech. I got zero for going and speaking to it. But he has, his, he has all of his group come together for a devotional. And I um, uh, had the unique privilege to speak to that group. After it was over, they took me on a tour of the facility there where they manufacture their books and they have all this stuff. And, and in the center of this building is a prayer chapel, a prayer room. And these fellows who were taking me around said that when they built this building, Zig Ziglar asked the architect to design it so that right in the center of the building was a place of prayer. Because he wanted everything he did, every decision he made, and every action of everybody in that building to, to spring as a, from, a, from this reference point, from the place where man meets God. Now, I have no um, verification of this except my own experience and, 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 and from my deepest conviction that when this man got old and he began to look at what was before him and what was behind him, there was deep regret. I think he must have said to himself, this must have been his dialogue, I wish I had made this journey with God. And I wish that I had made God the reference point of my life so that what I did was in reference to Him. And I wish that He had become the standard by which I measured every thought and every action. And now it's too late. That man Shakespeare plumbed the depths of human emotion. I want you to look this morning at his... A uh, picture of Lady Macbeth who had, uh, after she had slain Duncan, King of Scotland, and she sees his blood on her hands. Her mind is shattered and she wanders through the halls of the castle in her sleep and flings her hands up and says, Out, damned spot, out, I say. Here the blood, the smell of blood is still for all of the all of the perfumes of Arabia cannot sweeten this little hand. And Macbeth is watching her. And her physician is standing by. And Macbeth says to her physician, Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased? Pluck from memory a rooted sorrow? Raise out the written troubles of the brain and with some sweet oblivious antidote cleanse the stuffed bosom of this perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart and the physician says to Macbeth therein the patient must minister to himself I see the picture of a man coming to the end of his life and all of this guilt comes sweeping in on him of what he was to be and never was, what he was to do and never did. And he thinks, there's so many things I like to do, now my hands tremble, and my shoulders are stooped, and my legs are weak, 
and my eyes are dim, and my ears cannot hear, and I have insecurity and fear. Oh, to God, I've made the journey with him. Now it's too late. There's a second thing this passage seems to teach. It's this, that when you get old, you begin to confront certain conclusions. Let me tell you what he shows you what he says in verse 12. Look at what he says. He says, But beyond this, my son, in the context of all these books that have been written, he says this, But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books. Somebody must have read this. It belonged in my family. Excessive devotion to books is weary to the body. What the king is saying, the preacher he's called is saying is this, is that you can learn and you can learn and you can learn and never really come to any, this I knows. He's saying that you can argue and contemplate your repertoire of knowledge and never come to any ultimate conclusions about anything. You can get all this education and never arrive at any definite ultimate conclusions where you say, this I'm absolutely certain about, of this I am absolutely sure. Because there's some things, listen to me, there's some things that you have to learn or accept simply and ultimately by faith. They don't come through education. They don't come through the uh, extension of knowledge. There are some things that you arrive at simply by faith. Now, one conclusion I think we reach when we get old is that this is not all there is and that this life is not the end. I think that one conclusion we reach when we get old is this is that there is more beyond this life. Maybe it's like Napoleon's mother who said to Napoleon, wrote him a letter before he went into battle, his last one. She said, I'll not, I may not see you again, but I will see you again. It's too necessary not to be true. Maybe, maybe it's just too necessary not to be true, but I've come to a deep conclusion as I've gotten older, and that's this, that there is more beyond this life than this life. And because there is more beyond than this life, what I do in this life drastically impacts what lies beyond that makes this life important. I don't know whether you've heard uh, Stephen and Annie Chapman's uh, song or not, but it's called The Seasons of Man. Have any of you heard that song, The Seasons of Man? Ed's heard it. It's a song, it's, it's like this, it's a... Uh, it deals with the process of aging, and, and, and first as a little voice comes out, a little voice of a, the voice of a little boy comes out singing, this is what he sings. I'm the springtime. When everything seems so fine, whether rain or sunshine, you'll find me playing. Days full of, of pretending, when a dime is a lot to be spending. A time when life is beginning, I'm the springtime. He's followed by an adolescent voice which sings about his season. This, he sings like this, I am the summer when the days are warm and longer, when the call comes to wander, but I can't go far from home, when the girls become a mystery, 
When you're badly passing, barely passing history and thinking old is when you're 30, I'm the summer. And the voice of a man in his late 30s or early 40s sings next. This is what he sings. I'm the autumn days when changes come so many ways. Looking back, I stand amazed that time has gone so quickly. When love is more than feelings, it's fixing bikes and painting ceilings. It's when you feel a cold wind coming on the autumn days. And the last voice, as you can imagine, it seems stooped and tired, but it sings with an air of confidence. And this is what it sings. I am the winter when days are cold and bitter. The days I can remember number more than the days to come. When you ride instead of walking, when you barely hear the talking, and goodbyes are said too often, I am the winner. But I'll see the springtime in heaven, and it will last forever. It's the song I sing this morning. I'll see the springtime, and it will last forever. I've come to that deep conclusion as I mature. Now, some of you are not that close to that time yet, and you're just you're feeling invincible and strong. So, so what do you do between now and the time that you arrive at that conclusion? Well, let me suggest that you pull over to the side of the road and take evaluations, make some adjustments. I mean, put your pace in neutral and ask yourself some important questions. Now, let me give you some questions that you should ask yourself. Number one, am I really happy? Am I genuinely challenged and fulfilled in life? Am I really happy? Am I genuinely challenged and fulfilled in life? Second question, in light of eternity, am I making a conscious, consistent investment for the cause of God and for His glory. Question number three. Is the direction my life is leading me today, is it leading me toward a satisfying and meaningful future? Question number four. Can I honestly say that I am in the nucleus of God's will for my life? Now every in sports, every sport has a time, time out. It has a seventh inning stretch or a pit stop or a halftime where they, we just kind of pause for a moment. Pause and ask yourself those questions. Now listen to me. I can tell you how to get the right answers to those four questions. You can find it in chapter 11. Now look at it. He said the way to get the right answers to those four questions first of all is to become a generous giver give your life away he's not talking about money he's talking about time he's talking about life and influence he says you want to come you want a life that's meaningful and fulfilled give your life away and don't expect immediate returns on your investment be willing to plant trees you'll never sit under Abraham never saw the nation that the family that he fathered Second thing, be willing to give more than just for yourself or for others. He said, cast your bread upon the waters seven times if necessary. In other words, he's saying this, don't just live your life for yourself. 
Live your life for others. And then he says in number three, be flexible and adapt. Don't wait for the right conditions. If you wait for the right condition to do something, you'll never do anything. Go for it. Change the conditions of your life. Don't wait for things to be perfect. Make them that way. And then he says in verse eight, live courageously depending upon God. He's too wise to be mistaken. He's too good to be unkind. If you can't understand, you can't see his plan, if you can't trust his hand, can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Live courageously with faith in God. When you get old, you reach some conclusions, finally. In conclusion. When you get old, you begin to narrow life down to some basic imperatives. Here's the basic imperative, verse 13. Fear God and keep his commandments. When you boil life down to, to, to its basic, narrow limit, that's what you do. Fear God. That is, give reverence to God as above all others and obey him. Vince Lombardi was probably the greatest football coach that's ever coached. He won three professional championships. He was passionate for the fundamentals. He had a gut for the simple fundamentals of, of football, blocking and tackling. He had only a few basic plays, and he said if we execute those basic plays, if we do you know, the basic stuff like block and tackle, you don't have to have any tricks, etc. And the secret of a winning football team, he said, was executing the basics. So one Sunday they got beat. That wasn't what he loved, getting beat, especially by a team that he should have beaten. So he called a, 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 an emergency meeting of his team, an emergency practice, and he said, gentlemen, we're going to get back to the basics. And he held up a football, and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. Well, he was talking to guys that had been playing football for 15 or 20 years, but he was getting back to the basics. Gentlemen, this is a football. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. And the Word of God in its basic intent is that you fear Him and obey Him. Now I think I know why Solomon messed up at that point. I think I, think I have an answer as to why this man fouled up on the basics. I think it was because, first of all, he treated casually the Word of God. Now there were some, some specific instructions for, for every man, including Solomon, concerning one's life, how he handles his finance, and how he handles his relationships. And he knew those specific instructions, but he was like a kid who said, I'm going to live my life like I please are you planning on marrying an unbeliever? You do no better. Do you disregard God's ownership of all your possessions and treat those possessions as though they were yours? You do no better, don't you? And are you involved in a sexual relationship outside of marriage? You do no better, don't you? 
And a person who disregards or treats lightly the Word of God winds up crying at the end of his life, my life is vain. I think there's a second reason. I think he rejected God's accountability for his life. If you turn sometime to the 17th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, you'll find specific instructions God gave kings, including Solomon, and this was the instruction. He was to take the word of God, write it on a scroll, and read it in the presence of the priest all the days of his life. You know why? Because in the presence of the priest, you have a different perspective. I've had people say, well, now, better be quiet, better watch your language. The preacher just walked in. You know what I'm saying? Now, here's what happens. He took, he was commanded to take the Word of God, read it daily in the presence of a priest. Don't you imagine that had he done that, the priest might have said, Solomon, don't you think that 12,000 horses is a little bit much? for one man. Solomon, don't you think that 1,400 chariots is a little extravagant for one person? Come on, Solomon, don't you think that a thousand wives rips across the plan of God for every man who is to have one wife and to love her. Accountability. The sad thing is, is that he concludes by saying that when it's, when the final curtain is drawn, every person is not accountable to the priest. Every person is accountable to God. I think there's a third reason. And it's that Solomon became so enamored with the gifts, he forgot the giver. The richest man who's ever lived. The Queen of Sheba came to look at his treasury, and when she left, she said, the half has not been told. What I've heard about this man and his wealth, his knowledge, his, his, his treasury, it's not half what I've heard. Half of what I, I've heard only half of what it's like richest man who ever lived. You know what happened to him? He got so wrapped up in God's gifts. Does this sound familiar? He thought more of the gift than he did the giver. And it should have been like the song that goes like this. I've been blessed by the hand of the Lord. This life's sin ruined, His love restored. And with the sweet peace of heaven that this world cannot afford, I've been blessed by the hand of the Lord. I've been blessed with a body that's strong, and this temple of silence will be full of His song. For my sins, which were many, are remembered no more. For I've been blessed by the hand of the Lord. And because I know I have been so blessed, I want 
to love him and obey him. Do you? Let's bow and pray. Our Father, bring us up short today to the realization of where we are and what we ought to be, what we do and what we should do before we don't have the energy or the courage to do it anymore. And I pray for these of us among us today, young and idealistic with such great potential, so many talents. Lord, cause them now to remember their creator not just to remember your name or what you are about but to put in the center of their life you as a reference oh dear Lord stir our hearts today as to what you want us to do with this sermon for I pray in Jesus name and for his sake now listen to me Two weeks ago in this in this in the invitation of this service a young student at southeastern invited jesus into his heart to be saved he'd not been he'd not gone to church much he didn't even know what to do after that and so he sought out one of our people on the campus and said i was in church two weeks ago at first baptist church and i became a christian now what do i do I think we, we forget that that, that that could happen. Someone help you. I want you to give Jesus Christ your Lord today. Give your life away to Him. Invite Him into your life to be your Savior. To take away your sin. And place Him there as the reference of your life. Tell Him you want Him to save you. To take away your sin, you're giving your life to Him. And then come forward come to say that not before you don't have to talk just you're coming forward is what what you need to do by your coming say what you've done or maybe God has spoken to your heart this morning to say I want your life now you've got so much left I want that I want you to come today and surrender that life to me I want you in this church I want you to follow me I want your co complete commitment I want you to surrender all Maybe he's telling you that. While we stand to sing, we encourage you to respond to God's voice while we sing.